with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being priest for me, because you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase, because they have ceased obeying the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills, under oaks, poplars, and terebinths, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not come up to Gilgal, nor go up to beth nor swear an oath, saying, As the Lord lives. For Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her, her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Hear this, O priests. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for yours is the judgment, because you have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. <clears throat> with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them in their heritage. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at beth Aven. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. Therefore I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. Yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. 
I will take them away and no one shall rescue. I will again, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, God, I pray that you would cause it to come alive tonight and that you would speak into our hearts that which you meant for us to understand, God. We understand that this is a special message that, that you were speaking to your people at this time, God, and I pray that those things that you would have for us to glean that, that we would gain tonight, God. Pray that your spirit would just continue to, to work and move in our lives and, and cause us to, to think about the things that you want us to think about tonight, to meditate on those that you would have us to think about. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your faithfulness to be present with us tonight as you always are, God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, you may be seated. Well, uh, the last couple of weeks we've been going through the book of Hosea, and we've seen in uh, chapter 1, we saw a picture of judgment and then a, a picture of, of hope and restoration for the future. And we saw the same pattern in Hosea chapter 2 and 3, where we saw the picture of judgment and then a picture of restoration and hope for the future. Tonight, uh, we're going to be in chapters 4 and 5, where, like we just read, we're going to see there's, there's a lot of judgment present. But something that's cool about God and his word is there's always still something for us to gain from that. There's a lot for us to learn. The first three chapters of Hosea uh, deal with Hosea's personal life. And from here on out, chapters 4 through chapter 14 of the book, uh, we're not really, we're not going to see Hosea's personal life. It, this is strictly prophecy that we're going to see. And as we're going to see tonight, there's a, there's a lot that God has to say to them. We read in, in chapter 2 uh, a charge that God brought against Israel tonight. God's going to bring another charge, and it's, it's going to be similar but more specific and not as generalized as the first one. God's going to bring out this evidence against them, just like a courtroom setting. Verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy, or knowledge of God in the land. So like I said, this is a, we can picture it as a courtroom. Um, the word here, charge, is the word indictment. And it's a, a word that we're a little familiar with today, and we automatically think of a court setting. Uh, it, it's immediately, there's, there's a reminder that in the New Testament, we have another person in that court setting, not just God. You know, right here, it's, it's God charging Israel. But in the New Testament, we have Jesus as our advocate, like it talks about in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, and so for us, you know, and, and in this situation, God still has his mercy that's shown forth. For us, you know, Jesus has been the propitiation for our sins, and we don't have to face judgment when we turn to him and, and submit our lives. Uh, God still is so faithful to show his mercy here with the people, uh, but that's kind of the, the setting where we're at for verse 1. Uh, this no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land uh, is a direct, there's a direct parallel here uh, with one of the Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6, where it says, By mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. And so these things that were specifically given and, and, and said to depart from evil, Israel lacked 
each and every one of them. And as it is today, we find there is a big lack of truth, mercy, and knowledge of God in the land. However, for us, we've been given that, and it's our charge to bring those things into the land. Uh, it, and, it's, and it's not that it's ours, it's God's truth through the gospel, God's mercy presented through the gospel, and the knowledge of God. Without any knowledge of God and without these things, there's not a, there's not a hope for salvation because there's, the people won't know that they're sinners. They won't know that they need a Savior. And so for us, there's a big charge here. Uh, as God opens this up and, and talks about how the land doesn't, didn't have this, in our land today, it's the same situation. I like that the ESV puts this, uh, instead of truth or mercy, it says it's faithfulness or steadfast love. So we can, we can think about these things and, and see that truly this is the state that we're, our land is in today. He says that by swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore, the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. These five sins that he lists in verse 2 are all direct, they all directly break one of the Ten Commandments. They were not following the law, and, and the law was there to restrain them. And so by having no restraint, the sin just continued. The bloodshed continued, and it, it, was, it was like a, like, a effect where, like a domino effect where it just came one after another. And I'm sure they, they led to causing these other sins to, to come, up, come around. Um, and they, they were so far from God. The fruit of, of leaving truth and mercy and the knowledge of God uh, was much sadness and destruction over the land. And, and it's a similar thing today. I saw a study that uh, was conducted just around this exact time a year ago that said 29% of Americans in their lifetime um, have experienced depression. Uh, the statistic for the current today was 17.8%. And so there's, our world is, is so full of sadness and so full of destruction. And the, the sins here even affected the land and the animals. We read last, last week about how God even is going to make a covenant for the animals because the restoration is needed for them. It's a reminder that the effects of sin are widespread. They don't just hurt ourselves, but they hurt others. And we'll see chapter 5 they can also influence others and, and lead other people into sin. Verse 4, Let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priests. So God says, contention is not the answer. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, I have a privilege, something that I really enjoy, um, but sometimes don't get it. A lot of chances to do, but I used to work at this after-school program, and so sometimes I go and I visit the kids. A couple weeks ago, I was there, and there was these two boys, kindergartners, and they were just squabbling over, over every little thing. Um, and I told them, I said, I, I, I talked to them both separately, and they were getting mad because they were breaking the rules. And I said to both of them, I said, the, the problem, I'm not upset that you broke the rules. I'm upset because you guys were fighting. They kept fighting over, over so many little things. 
And I said, hey, guys, the, the answer is just come, come to the teachers. If he's breaking the rule, you don't need to fight him or argue with him about it because he probably doesn't even know what he's doing is wrong. Just go, go talk to a teacher. For us, I, it made me just think of this because contention that we can find with other people, the best way to deal with it is just, just to go to God. God has the answers. God sees the situation different than we do, and he's going to give us uh, the right response. These people weren't even in a, in a place to correct or rebuke another, also because they were all in sin. It says that the people were like those who contended with the priests. The priests were the ones that were given uh, divine authority from God, and so if they were contending with the priests, they were even contending with God's authority. Verse 5, Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. I really like this quote from David Guzik. He said, it's bad enough, regarding the first part of verse 5, it's bad enough to stumble in the night, but at least we can understand it. But when God's people cast off the knowledge of God, restraint, and guidance from leaders, then they shall stumble even in the day. In this time, uh, the priest, uh, it, they were, it was an office that was given by God. However, in 1 Kings chapter 12, uh, Jeroboam the first, remember Jeroboam the second was the king during this time, but Jeroboam the first, he had appointed priests from, it said, it says in first Kings, he made people priests of all the different classes. And Jeroboam the first also, along with Uzziah, king of Judah, took the place of a priest in offering sacrifices, something that was said only for the priest to do. These offices that God had given the priest and the prophet that were supposed to be appointed by God came to be appointed by man, and they, they stumbled in sin. Their corruption and forsaking God would lead to the destruction of the nation. That's what it is when it says, I will destroy your mother. The mother is the reference to the nation. He continues, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. It's a running theme that we're going to see that the lack of knowledge and the lack of understanding leads to destruction. Huge warning for us. You know, we have God's word. Let's not stray from it. There's, a, there's no place for us to even apply God's word to our lives unless we know it. And, and so they weren't, even at, they weren't even at step one. They didn't, even, they didn't even know the word. And because they rejected God, he was going to now reject them. This next short section here is strictly, a, it, it's addressed to the priests. It's a continuance of, of this thought line. He says, the more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I would change their glory into shame. God provided the blessings for the people, and they responded in sin against God. Like, we read the same thing last week. They, they took what God had given and used it for sin. And so what he's going to do is he's going to take the things that they're taking for pride, these sacrifices, these false worship that they took glory and pride in, and he's going to bring it for their shame. Uh, one of my personal favorite verses in the Bible is, is Luke chapter 14, verse 11. And it says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
And it's a theme that is repeated in the Bible so many times. When I first read that verse, I didn't realize, but it, that explicit text is present in so many other places in the Bible. And so these things that they, they took that were supposed to be for God, for their own glory, God's going God's to gonna humble them. And he's going to put them in the place that, that they deserve. Verse 8 and 9, it says, They eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their iniquity. It shall be like priests, or like people like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. The sin of the people came to benefit the priests. And the priests here weren't, they weren't just okay with it, but they wanted it to continue because it was for their profit. God had given them this office as priests from him and so when they took it when they when the office was appointed by man it took away the the sanctification and and the set apartness that was meant for that office it was meant for them to be set apart to be holy to the lord and by them being on the same level as the people they acted as the people did like people like priests as it says there's a, there's a higher standard that was supposed to be set for the priests, yet they just brought it down low. I really love every any time that Pastor Bob brings up specific convictions that he has, especially about something like, like TV. He's talked about it before. Because it, it sets a standard for the people that maybe they don't think about, maybe something that they've been convicted of themselves, and it sets an example that is above reproach for the people to follow. When you set... When you set the standard at the ground, there's, there's, no, there's no room to maneuver. The people are, are going to be stuck in their sin, and there's going to be nothing for them to be led out of that. If the pastor sins, the people will follow the example. If people saw Pastor Bob at a bar, they would think it's okay to drink, and so he doesn't, he doesn't do that. It says, they shall eat but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry but not increase because they have ceased obeying the Lord. We read about this last week, how God is going to take every single form of satisfaction they get from sin. And so while they're in sin, they're never going to be satisfied. And it's a blessing. God provides this blessing through his mercy and and the fact that he doesn't let us be content in sin. The problem here was they were trying to find their contentment in worldly things. And there's a lot of people today that do that whether it's money or, or jobs or whatever it is, people try to find their contentment in things of this world. True contentment only comes from God. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, Not that I speak in regards to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He said, I know how to be abased and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then this verse it's very famous i can do all things through christ who strengthens me that i can do all things through christ and strengthen me who strengthens me is often is often misquoted but it's rooted in the fact that the contentment is found in the lord and in the strength of the lord there's no contentment that can be found in things of the world it's not something that's based off of physical circumstances but only from the lord 
And so because they ceased obeying the Lord here, they're going to have none. It says, harlotry, wine, and new wine enslaved the heart. It's pretty obvious, the interpretations here, that they're drunk, their drunkenness and their adultery is what enslaves them. It's interesting, it says wine and new wine. If you remember in the book of John, chapter 2, Jesus, the first miracle that Jesus performs, turning the water into wine, it talks about that they put the, the new wine out first, and then when the people got drunk, they put the old wine out I got, that, I got the opposite. They put the old wine out first because it was good, it was seasoned. And then when they got drunk, they put out the new wine that wasn't as good. And I, I think that the depth, the, the wine and new wine here just points to the depth that they were enslaved in their sin. And they were so enslaved that it, it, took, it took their heart. Their understanding was changed. And they even got to the point where it says, my people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. They even look to, to wooden images, things that could just be burned in the fire. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills, under oaks, poplars, and terebinths, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry, and your brides commit adultery. The mountaintops, hills, and these different trees that are listed. Uh, why, why it's listed is because these were the places where false worship was performed. And the sacrifices and the incense was only supposed to be for God, to God, in the temple. And so they took it. They took it to these places that were used for harlotry, for worship of these pagan gods. Verse 14, and I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with the ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. The previous verse in this one, there's some context that's needed. The false worship and idolatrous worship of these pagan gods was often performed, especially since a lot of them were fertility gods, by hiring a prostitute going in and having sex before this idol. And, and so God's saying, why, why punish the, the harlots for it when you went out and hired the harlot? It, it doesn't make sense why, why they would expect the, the harlots to receive judgment, but, but them not to. The men here were the root cause of the harlotry taking place. And they truly, they truly didn't understand what they were doing or, or how they were turning away from God. He says, therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. So here we have understanding leads to destruction. Before, lack of wit- knowledge leads to destruction. It reminds me that the book of Proverbs, such a crucial book, talking about wisdom and instruction, and we see that even the writer of the book, his son didn't even follow the advice that he gave. And I, th- I think the difference there is that the stubbornness. We'll read about how God says that Israel is stubborn in a minute. 
but Rehoboam was, was so stubborn to not listen to his dad and to not listen to wise counsel that he was given that he, he was the root cause of leading this nation into this split and to going apart from God. Verse 15 is a warning to Judah. He says, Though you Israel play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not come up to Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, nor swear an oath, saying as the Lord lives. He was saying, Judah, don't fall into Israel's corruption. Gilgal and Beth-Avon were centers of this false worship. Uh, Gilgal is a place that is, comes up in the Bible before. Uh, Joshua chapter 5 is, is where the nation of Israel uh, became circumcised and all the guys weren't able to go out to war and, and they were in Gilgal at that time. It was a place of purification. And then in the days of Elijah and Elisha, Gilgal was a place where they were and, and that where prophets were trained. But it had turned into now a place of false worship. Beth-Avon is actually Bethel, which means house of God, and Beth-Avon means house of deceit. And so Hosea is calling it that because it had changed. It had not become a house of God. It had become a house of deceit. Jeroboam I had made Bethel one of the centers for calf worship in the north of Israel. And these places, as Amos prophesies, they will be led to captivity and destruction. And God says that they weren't to take an oath in his name. Because if they, if they did that, then they would be justifying the sin and the false worship that was taking place there. As I mentioned a second ago, verse 16, we get an analogy. And continuing... As God continues to bring these charges against Israel, now he says, Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage, like a lamb in open country. In the King James here, the word, instead of stubborn, it says, Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. I think that's important because it reveals that the nature was they were backsliding. They had turned from God. They had fully turned from him and, and, and were stubborn. And they weren't going to turn back. So what God's going to do is he's, he's going to let them go out in the open country. The lamb in the open country is one away from their shepherd. They're away from the flock. Uh, they're left to fend from them, for themselves. And they're also easy prey for predators. If, if it was a cow, cows aren't as much of an easy prey, and so they might be able to defend themselves. But he's saying they're going to they're gonna be out there for themselves. He continues the thought in verse 17. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. He's going to refer to Israel as Ephraim uh, 35 times in the rest of this book. Uh, most of the time he's going to refer when he says Ephraim, he's referring to the nation as a, as a whole. This next section that we're going to read in a few minutes is referring to the, the tribe of Ephraim. It was the largest tribe in the north of Israel. It was the most influential. It was also uh, where Bethel was. So it, it was a big center for this idolatrous worship. And they had, they had strayed far from God and, and to the point where they were so engrossed in their idols 
that there wasn't a hope for them to turn back. And so God says, let him, let him alone, let him go. He says, their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. These last two verses reinforce things from earlier. One that the corruption started and, and came from the leaders. The rulers dearly loved dishonor. And that God would take these sacrifices that they gloried in and bring them to be in their shame. These people were carried around as a nation with these winds of doctrine and, and going to from nation to nation, pagan God to pagan God, seeking trying to seek satisfaction apart from God. But for those who are his God, who, who were gods, there is none, no true satisfaction apart from the Lord. Continues bringing the charge. Chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this, O priest. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for yours is the judgment, because you have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. The threefold charge here, priests, the house of Israel, so the nation, and the house of the king. The judgment, the judgment is for them. And, and what he says is, because you've been a, a snare. He's talking about the judgment is for trapping and, and leading the others into this communal sin that they had of, of false worship. Mizpah was in the northeast of Israel, and Tabor was in the southwest, and so the, the connotation is that it was all across the land. It, it could be that these places were used for hunting, and so it would make sense that this language is used, that it was a snare and a net spread. But they continued uh, not only to pursue this in themselves, but to lead others into it. And that's a scary thing. They continued in violence in verse 2. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. So they turned from God. They continued ignoring God's correction. Their pride and stubbornness to not listen to God was truly the, the root of the problem here. Because God always honors a humble heart. Uh, at UGM a few weeks ago, we, we talked about King Ahab. And when God brought charges through the prophet Elijah against King Ahab in his house, Ahab, it says that he, he did the whole sackcloth and ashes and humbled himself before God. And, and so God said there, he said to King Ahab, uh, Mr. Page, because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. So even a, a wicked king like King Ahab, when he chose to be humble and and and, and submit and say and come back to God, God said, "Okay, I'm I'm going to honor that." And even though Israel's attempts at repentance uh, that we'll read about and and Ahab's repentance wasn't real. God always honors that, that humble and, and true response to say, I'm nothing, and, and God, I come to you. I know Ephraim, verse 3, 
Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. So like I said, here it's speaking to Ephraim as the, the, the tribe, not as, not as the whole nation because this tribe of Ephraim was very wicked. God was aware. He says, I know them. They're not hidden. Every single sin, every single corruption, as much as he's aware of, of all the little good things, he's aware of all the little bad things that they did. And all these things cause the nation to be defiled. He says, they do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst. They do not know the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. Proverbs talks about how pride comes before the fall. And so here, Israel's pride is so evident. It's on their face. And one of the inherent dangers in pride is not just the fact that it takes focus and puts it onto ourselves. It's the fact that it takes the focus, especially when it takes the focus from God. And that's, that's what it did in this case. They're going to try to earn God's favor. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, for they have begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them in their heritage. They're going to, they're going to take their, their flocks and their herds, their sacrifices, and try to earn God's favor. But it's a, it's a false repentance. They did not direct their deeds toward turning to God, as it said in verse 4. And so God's going God's gonna to pull away. And they're not going to find him. Next week, we'll read, uh, I think this is maybe the most known verse in the book of Hosea. Hosea 6.6, 6, where it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God just wanted them to know him, to come to him, and, and not just to try and throw all these things out to receive from God. He wants a relationship, not, not all the, the perks. The, the new moon that it refers to in verse 7 uh, is in reference to a month. And so the, the thought is the destruction is going to come quick. It's going to come you know, soon. And the, the sad thing is that their children were pagan. They did not even know anything of God. Reminds of the, uh, the time of the judges. We talked about it in, in, when we were going through Ruth. The people had, had no knowledge of God. They had no way to come back to God because the parents weren't faithful in, in teaching them. God puts a, a big emphasis on the inst- instruction in the book of Deuteronomy that one, the kings were to abide by the, by the law of God and to, to stay in it, but also on the instruction of the children. So I'm thankful for us that we have Awana going on tonight and we do have a big emphasis on instructing these children, but Personally, for each one of us too, that's, I, I believe that's a charge that God gives us. Uh, and it's, it's so important because here we find that there's destruction that came. God warns them. 
Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth-Avon. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. Ramah, Beth-Avon, Gibeah, these were cities that were on the southern border of Israel, between Israel and Judah. And so when he's warning Judah, he says, all these places that are close to the border, take heed because Ephraim, your neighbor to the north, is going to come and be destroyed. Especially, he's, they say that to, he says it to Benjamin because Benjamin was that tribe of, remember Judah is two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin was the northern part of Judah, so they were right up against that border. And there was a severe danger that when Ephraim was destroyed by the Assyrians, that the same could happen to Benjamin. So God's taking care to warn them. But then he, he goes ahead and, and he uses Hosea, who is, a remember, a prophet to Israel. He still uses Hosea to speak to Judah here. Verse 10, The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. In Proverbs, Deuteronomy, in two different places, it speaks of uh, these boundaries, these landmarks. Proverbs, it talks about, it, it's, it simply just says in Proverbs, don't remove them. <laughs> in Deuteronomy, it, it talks, it says, those who do it will receive a curse. And so they had these stones that, almost like we have maps today, were their boundary markers. And he said, they're like those who remove them, who, who move them back and forth. And, and I, I really like the way that um, commentator Wood put this. He said, Judah's leaders, however, were not shifting physical property lines, but spiritual lines established by God, changing the boundary between right and wrong, between true and false religion, between the true God and the idols. Slowly, they were, they were giving way to the corruption from the north. And as God's warning them, they're, they're not going to listen. He says, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. Because they chose to walk by human precepts and they had known God, that means that they had rejected the precepts that God had given them. They chose to walk in their own ways and so the, the destruction on Ephraim is going to come like a moth. Personally, we've had moths in our house before, and they get in everything, and they ruin everything pretty quickly. And that's what's going to happen to Ephraim. For Judah, it's going to be like rottenness. If you picture a house where the foundation is rotten, it takes time, but the ruin does come. And, and so for Judah, it's going to be the same way. Their destruction will come. It's not going to be immediate. It'll take longer, but the writing's on the wall. It's going to happen. They, they see this, and they recognize in verse 13 that God's taken away the blessing. When Ephraim sought his sickness and Judah sought his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. So they're recognizing God's taken away the blessing, uh, and so they run to the enemy. <laughs> they run to Assyria, who was going to come in and, and be the one that conquered them. God says that they're going to find nothing. 
But the, the, the use of the word heal here is interesting. Where he says, nor heal you of your wound. The last chapter of the book Hosea, and, in, and also in a place in Jeremiah, in speaking of the backsliding of Israel, God says specifically, I will heal their backsliding. It's an interesting concept because the backsliding, backsliding is often viewed as something that, it, it's something that, that somebody did. You, you, you did it for yourself. And the fact that God's going to heal it shows that he's one, God's, God is always the cause of true restoration and true salvation. But also the fact that this is what he desired. This was what he was, he was working to and through, through all this time. This healing from the backsliding truly did and will come from God in the future, though it would take time. The last two verses here says, For I will be a, like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I Even I will tear them and go away. I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face, and their affliction they will earnestly seek me. So God's still waiting. This judgment's going to be going to come, and God's going to use Assyria. God's going to use Babylon. It was God that used them. God specifically says that, that he's going to be the one that brings the judgment, and so he's going to use these nations. And then he's going to wait patiently for them to come back, to turn with a whole heart and come back to God. And the beautiful thing there is there's still time. There's still time. When we talked about the chapters before, we talked about how even though Israel is now ret- returned in the country, their restoration and turning to God is not yet complete. And so we know as we're here today, uh, whether the Lord comes for his, his church tonight or tomorrow or a year from now or however long, there's still time. And we're called, uh, going back all the way to, to chapter 4, verse 1, to bring truth, to bring mercy, and the knowledge of God to the world through the gospel. Though there's much judgment, and we saw tonight there's much judgment, and the world is filled with much darkness and much sadness, there's still hope. We've been given the hope, yet the world doesn't know that they're missing out on it. And so it's our job to go out and, and, and share that with them. And we also, through having that hope for ourselves, have the means to draw close to God. And we have the word to draw close to God. And God has, just as he charged his people in Deuteronomy, the same blessings are for us, for those who, who seek the Lord and draw close to his word and, and stay in it. Uh, there's blessing in that, huge blessing. And so I think that's a, that's a maybe big takeaway for tonight, the fact that, Yes, this judgment is serious, and there's some little things here that, that we can even be convicted by, such as not worshiping in the right way sometimes. We have great opportunities to worship here at church and even at home by ourselves. And it's so important to take that, take that seriously and, and to, to have that pure heart before the Lord and, and worship because it truly is a great opportunity to, to please God. Um, sometimes... We have things that happen in, in life or certain practices that we may do, whether it's just a, a Bible reading plan in the morning 
Um, but it's so beautiful to come to God and recognize that what we're doing is something that is pleasing to him because he tells us what pleases him and we know from his word. So as we uh, continue tonight, we have a couple more minutes. I, I think it would be fitting just to, just to take some time to pray for our nation. It's election season coming up. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff that's happening in our land in Israel also. And so we can pray for them. So let's just take a couple minutes um, as we close. And uh, I'll, I'll start and I'll pray. And then as you feel led, uh, let's pray for a few minutes. Lord, uh, we thank you for your mercy. God, the fact that for these, these nations that were so set on rebellion against you, you warned them time and time again to turn. And, and for our nation here, God, I believe you've spoken the same thing. I pray that you would use us, God, to speak to the people that you put across our paths, Lord, whether they're the only Bible that, that they ever read. God, I pray that you would cause a revival in our nation and personally first, God. We know we need that first before it can happen in the world. Lord, I pray for the missionaries that you've sent out to nations across the world and even the missionaries that other countries have set, sent to us in the U.S., God. Pray for, uh, Lord, the lawmakers, the politicians, God, the, the laws and the things that, that come into place that really affect our, our lives, God, I pray you would raise up Christian leaders to, to bring that revival to, to your nation, God, only by your spirit and through your strength. Lord, I pray for all of our, our generations, God, the children here, um, oh Lord, the, the older, the younger, the middle-aged, God. Would you use your people here tonight, us, God, as your vessels, to speak your word to people. Lord, only for, only for your glory. And it, it is our reward. And it is pleasing to us to be able to serve you, our master. God, we pray that you would fill us with the knowledge and the right words to say at the right time, especially, God, to those who are, are going through hard situations that have decided in their hearts to reject you. God, would you soften their hearts? And as a whole, would you soften the hearts of our nation, and give us boldness to speak your word so that we might just sit back and, and Lord, watch your glory and, Lord, your people return to you.